This is Corkscrew Convo's Another Theme Park Podcast. My name is Chris. And my name is DJ. And we're here today to talk about theme parks, roller coasters, barbecue, the theater, rad rides from 40 years ago, and everything else under the sun in its time. But first, let's get this disclaimer out of the way. The views, opinions, and information expressed during the following presentation are solely those of the individuals involved and do not represent organizations affiliated with those individuals. And yes, you are correct. The 80s took place 40 years ago. 40 years ago. That's wild to think about. Even though I wasn't there, it seems like it was a long (laughs) time ago. (laughs) Uh, But DJ, it's December now. I haven't decorated for the season yet, and I might not because I don't actually have decorations. So that would involve purchasing or making or like making a wreath out of newspaper and getting all creative. But then again, I don't read paper newspapers. So then I'd have to go out to the store and get paper newspaper and then I don't know. It's a lot. But what I do have is a page out of the playbook of Soren, uh, that ride at Disney California Adventure and wherever else. Uh, and that is Smell-O-Vision, DJ. Uh, it's a very easy way for me to set the scene, I think. And again, I know what the listeners think. Oh, my God, they're about to do an ad. No, we're not. This is just me <laughs> saying that I found oils and <laughs> a borrowing an oil diffuser from a friend, DJ. And it's a real scene setter. Uh, It's wild how much scent can put together an experience. And of course, we see that in theme park contacts with Soren, but with also different rides like Spaceship Earth or even at Hershey Park, they have a couple different examples of that too. Uh, But DJ, last night I was watching the TV, I was doing some stuff, cleaning up, and I dropped a few peppermint oil drops in the diffuser, and boom, it's like I'm a candy shop. Um, and again, dear listener, this is not a Scentsy ad, I promise. It's not even Scentsy products that I had. Uh, but I just thought it was a fun way to get festive, and I wanted to bring it up because it's something that is new yeah. to me, and it's pretty fun. And that stuff is so concentrated that like it's only a couple drops is all you need. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, as soon as I... Did a couple drops in the diffuser. I already, oh, wow, I already smell it. <laughs> My uh, wife used to fun. have an entire shelf of scents, like 40-plus different scents to choose from. She'd combine them sometimes, try to do a fusion combine. thing. And it, it was great. Yeah, you could do, like, two drops of, like, she'd always use almost, like, tea tree oil and almost every, or not tea tree oil, um, eucalyptus. Like, two eucalyptus in every single one and, like, clears your sinuses out. Or at least you think it does. Wow, I had no idea. That's why they call these oils essential, or is that something else? Is that <laughs> no, something that's else? it. That's essential this, oils. These are yeah. essential oils. They're but essential. Some people you put them on them. your skin and stuff. I think that's why they're called essentials, but we would just use them for scents. You know, I hadn't tried topical use yet, but I think that's the next frontier for me. <laughs> I'm going to walk yeah. into the office on Monday smelling like a candy cane. And we're just back gag. to candles at this point, you know. Yeah, I mean, candles, that's the old-fashioned way, DJ. That leaves something behind. When you have a diffuser that has that little fancy light and it's puffing out the steam or fog or whatever it is, I don't exactly know. a humidifier. The trick is, DJ, I have no idea how it works because as soon as I plug it in, it's already shooting out the steam. So I'm like, I can't be waiting for a boil. What is this? Yeah, I, I don't know either. It's probably super simple. If someone explains it to us, we'd be like, oh. Of course, that's how it works. It's magic, DJ. Uh, It's it's crazy. (laughs) That's how I've been trying to get into the season. Um, And again, I haven't decorated, but another thing that I have done is I have baked cookies, DJ. And in the December of 2022, we're just about done with the year, I have learned something new about myself. Oh, and that is? I, I don't want to brag, DJ, but I have a superpower. Um, I guess more of a super sense, really. Not like a spidey sense, but something uh, a little different. I have a gift for knowing exactly when to pull the cookies out of the oven. And uh, yeah, I just, I know exactly when. I look at my Easy Bake Oven that I have on the table. I, <laughs> I peek open the door. The light comes on. No, they're not ready yet. And then, oh, I just have a sense. I go right back to it like 30 seconds later. And boom, I see the cracks starting to form. I see the browning on the edges just starting to go. And I pull them out at the right, the exact perfect moment. And I feel like that is a super sense that I have. It's not because I've read the back of the bag and followed the instructions. Uh, It's not because of that. It's because I just 
know when it's time to take the cookies out of the oven. And when it gets to the end of the year, that's a very valuable skill to have. So I'm glad that I have it, and it's a, a glorious burden that I will bear uh, heading into the Christmas season. Now, you are making the dough from scratch, or is this a packet? Yes, I did make the dough from scratch. I opened the bag, I put in the egg and the stick of butter, and then I mixed it all together. Uh, Oh, okay. (laughs) I was just just curious. That's made from scratch compared to getting cookie dough from the store. (laughs) And you stick with chocolate chip, peanut butter, something simple, or do you You do something crazy? I made sugar cookies once, and those were great because I I think sugar cookies are slept on. Uh, Not enough people acknowledge sugar cookies. Everybody's like, oh my goodness, chocolate chip, that's what I need. Oh my goodness, chocolate chip, put M&Ms in it, put a Hershey Kiss on top of it. Yes, that's great, but sometimes it's good to just get the plain sugar cookie. Yes. And I think that too few people are afraid to say that. Uh, So for me taking a stand, I'm going to try to use my platform for good in this sense and try to say that sugar cookies are something that people should try more of when it comes to cookies during the holiday season. I agree completely. I think what's critical is that they're warm and Mm -hmm. they're actually soft on the inside because I think so many people have a hockey puck sugar cookie and then they just completely discount the variety. My favorite, and in my opinion, the number one cookie flavor out there is Snickerdoodle. You know, it's funny that you mentioned Snickerdoodles, DJ. I did another batch of cookies just uh, the other day and it wasn't a sugar cookie. And I saved this batch for after the sugar cookies because there was an extra step of difficulty that I had not yet done before. Oh. And oh, it was a snickerdoodle, DJ, and it was delicious. <laughs> I made the little cookie dough, I mixed it. At this point, I just cleaned my hands really good, and then I mixed the dough with my hands like they did in the old-fashioned days. I don't have a mixer. And I got the cookies... I got the balls ready. I dipped them in the cinnamon, rolled them around, put them on the pan. Mmm. It turned out amazing, DJ. Again, leaning on my gift of knowing exactly when to pull the cookies out of the oven. DJ, I think snickerdoodles are also very good. I... I don't want to say they're better than sugar cookies, because I think I want my next batch to be sugar cookies with M&Ms in them. I think that would take us to new heights. But I think that snickerdoodles, they add a little bit of a exotic flair to cookie baking. Because where did mm-hmm. snickerdoodles even come from? Norway? No idea. Yeah, if only we had the internet to look. But we're actually <laughs> working on lockdown browsers as part of our podcast. Um, much like when you're proctoring a test. Uh, but unfortunately, we'll never know. Uh, we'll just leave that to the dear listener to look up on their own if they want to know where Snickerdoodles came oh, from. They they actually originated in the United States. Wow. Then why do they feel so exotic to me? <laughs> they probably, it says they probably originated. Oh, by the way, dear listener, if you want to look this up, skip two minutes ahead. Uh, they probably originated in New England. But they are either of German or Dutch descent. Unfortunately, there is no clue as to how they got such a peculiar name. Wow. Aren't they named after the dog? Huh. Labradoodle? I don't, I don't know. I don't know. Well, that's... I, I, don't know. I really like Snickerdoodles, too. And it's I similar feel like, to a, uh, a ginger cookie, like you talk about, yeah. a little more exotic. Yeah, yeah, it's got that cinnamon and it adds a little bit of heat to it. Uh, but, dear listener, I don't want you to think that I'm unfairly biased when it comes to cookies. And I know DJ knows me mm-hmm. better than that, but I, I just want to say as we close out on this cookie talk chocolate chip cookies are really good they're Mm -hmm. amazing they're great to have i think when people think of a cookie that is the prototype that appears in their head when they try to picture a cookie unless you're one of the people that cannot conjure objects in your head because apparently some people just do not have a, a visual thought process in that sense do you know what i'm talking about dj Mm, maybe how it's on the internet sometimes. Some yeah. people can picture an apple in their head, a photorealistic mm-hmm. apple. Right. Some people can picture a cartoonish apple diagram thing. Some pic- some people can picture like a, a black and white line drawing of an apple. And some people can't even picture an apple yeah. in yeah. their head. And that's just how they operate. And everybody's different apparently. 
and there's a lot more that goes into it than what we're describing here. <laughs> but what I'm trying to say is when people who can picture a cookie in their head picture a cookie in their head, I would say more likely than not, it's a chocolate chip cookie. Yes. Yes. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's fine that you have your classics that you go back to year after year, day after day. But I just think that there is better, I don't know, there's more variety out there that people need to acknowledge when it comes to cookies. That's all I'm trying to say. If we want to button this up, put a bow on it, it actually says here, there's a book called The Joy of Cooking. It claims snickerdoodles are probably German in origin. The name is a corruption of the German word Schneckennoodle, okay. a, a palatine variety of Schnecken. Schnecken is a type of sweet bun or roll of German origin. Uh, it is also probably that the name is simply a nonsense word with no meaning. The Oxford English Dictionary claims the word's origin is uncertain. It might be the combination of the word snicker and doodle, doodle meaning a Germanic loan word into English, which is like simple or foolish fellow. <laughs> simple or foolish fellow. Oh, wow. I, I'm, I'm kind of sad that we already have a name for this podcast episode because <laughs> that would have been the name. Simple or foolish fellow. I <laughs> <laughs> uh, love their cookies, though. Uh, but DJ, what about you? Uh, what has uh, your Christmas season looked like so far? You know, it's been um, a little bit interesting um, having a little one around, second year with a little one. He's not as little as he was last year, so uh, a little bit more freedom for us. Um, as far as decor is concerned, you say you don't really have any decorations up. We had all of our indoor decor up since November the 2nd. Wow, um, just like Disneyland. Exactly. We go, we're in theme park mode here. The same goes with taking it all down. It's None of this stuff is coming down until after New Year's Day for sure. Um, but we always put our stuff up early. You know, it's like the only reason we didn't have it up November one was because I was taking October 31 decor down on November one for Halloween. Um, unfortunately time just got away from me. I had some work trips and just other things going on. So outdoor phase was a little bit delayed. I got phase one up a couple weeks after the second. And I say, uh, I did actually, it was my wife that got some of all the outdoor stuff up. Uh, I was slacking, uh, so I didn't get phase two up until yesterday. Um, that is the lights that involve climbing on a ladder and that sort of thing. She got a cool garland thing up outside, a cool sign up, um, but I didn't do much uh, so until yesterday. So that's kind of where we're at. We uh, went to a Chris Kindle Mart a few weeks ago here in our town. It was really fantastic. That's like a German market. Um, there's a lot of uh, Germanic folk here in Indiana, or at least descents. And so that's really important for the people around here, I guess. Uh, but it was really cool to see all the different things available there. Uh, cuckoo clocks, German snacks, all sorts of stuff. Ice skating. I didn't see a snickerdoodle. Oh. Um, I had a fantastic, uh, is it mold wine or mulled wine? I think it's mulled mold. wine. Mold? Okay. Yeah. I had a fantastic mulled wine. Some Never had that vine. before. Yeah, oh, so good. Hot. It was so cold that day, too, so it was just great to drink. Um, really a fun time, though. So that's really all we've done. We might hit up King's Island this coming weekend for Winterfest. We will see. We will see. But um, that's where I'm at right now. Um, I, I am curious if I could ask you a philosophical question, though. It's, it's related to winter, but it's also related to Disney. And we talk about Disney a lot here on the podcast, whether it be rides, parks, media, and things of the sort. Okay. I'm a little guarded but go ahead you've seen frozen correct uh four times in the theaters yes have you seen the second frozen i saw it once in the theater but i fell asleep okay well i think this is we can still ask this olaf is created by elsa correct yes okay and he is created from the memories of her and also the shared memory she has with anna growing up correct yes Okay. This power that she has that we don't talk about, consciousness, can she create consciousness? Hmm. Now, Olaf would not be the only example of this. So it would also be the big snow monster and the little snow yes. monsters, too. And various levels of consciousness. 
Oh, because Olaf is fully articulating, speaking, remembering water, his memory. That I do remember from Frozen 2, if I don't remember anything else. But the other snow creatures do not. And Olaf can even ponder his own own existence. Yes, and then he can also, at the end, self-actualize and figure... Well, yeah, he did that at the end of Frozen... One, I think. Or was that two? I don't know. I remember nothing about Frozen 2 because, again, I unfortunately fell asleep with the theater, which is not something that I thought I would ever do, but it was a long week. That's so not a, because the movie was bad. You just, you were well, too busy. Well, it was right after the week before Thanksgiving, so okay. I had gotten no sleep, and <laughs> it's usually a pretty busy week for me. Yeah. But, so you're trying to say that Elsa is some sort of a god. <laughs> That's That was my next question. Is Elsa... God, and we can also look at Frozen Two, where she becomes master of all things elements, Whoa. stone. Spoiler: Is that real? She becomes <laughs> an earthbender. Essentially. Wow, I gotta watch that sometime. <laughs> it is a little jarring that I did see Frozen four times in the theaters, and then Frozen <laughs> Two once, and I fell asleep during it. <laughs> it's like, That's wow, called personal you must not growth. Like that one. <laughs> oh, okay. That's. Hmm, I'm gonna have to think about that one. And then she gives Olaf the ability to perceive. And we don't and we don't say anything in the movie. The characters are like, la, 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 la. Like, oh, it doesn't matter. It's like, hold on. She can create life, I think. Hmm. Well, I, the ability to create life is, is in a lot of us, at least, I think. But sure, in the sense but- of creating life out of snow and... We're getting too into the weeds. And so maybe you, dear listener, can ponder this question, but it's something that came up this morning when we were having family time. (laughs) So Elsa creates life out of inanimate elements. (laughs) Did she create the little fire gecko? Is that something else? Mm, I don't know. Wait, how did she get this gift? Was this the trolls that gave her the gift? Well, that's, you gotta, you gotta watch the second movie. That's where she figures out her powers. Oh, now I really gotta watch the second movie. Oh, well, that is something that I have to think on. I just came into this episode thinking that we were gonna talk about fun roller coasters from the 1980s, <laughs> and here you are making me think about things like a Black Mirror episode. <laughs> well, the, we had the winter prompt. We talk about Disney every now and then. I, I thought it was appropriate. Yeah, I'm really going to have to think about that. Dear listener, if you have any thoughts to add to discussion, maybe a Reddit thread that answers this already or something like that, go ahead and let <laughs> us know after you've listened to this episode. If you want to add something in a conversation, there's a lot of easy ways for you to do that. Uh, we are Corkscrew Convos on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, all the other stuff too. We have corkscrewconvos at gmail.com as well if you would like to contribute something to this greater conversation about Elsa, her powers, and what that ultimately means. And we've got plenty of fun to cover this episode as well. We have uh, some great topics today. Really, we're talking about 80s roller coasters. We, we did the segment for a while where on every episode we had, depending on what the number of the episode was, we'd find the corresponding year in history and divulge into the coaster that originated during that year of time. We had fun with it. It kind of fell off because we had so much to talk about that it made the episodes a little bit longer than they needed to be, but we're back. Um, But before we talk about that, we do want to tell you about some of the great episodes we have put out recently. Um, Some of these great episodes you can listen back to, whether you're traveling across, across the country for the holidays, maybe you're bored at work, whatever it might be, working out. Some people like to do that as well. Um, and one episode I really enjoyed talking about was your trip, Chris, to Top Golf. Uh, myself, being a golfer for like, I guess like 15 years now, it was interesting to hear your first experience at a Top Golf and what you thought of that. Yeah, I was new to that, but I was very impressed with the experience. And of course, you had a lot more insight about how that all works. For me, it was sort of just hitting the ball, and sometimes I would get eight points, sometimes I got three or zero points, and I wouldn't exactly know why that was, but it was still fun nonetheless. And I know there's more for me to learn, more for me to do with Top Golf, and I can't wait to go back again. We also had a, another episode before that that was uh, another one in a series called Chris Takes Orlando 4, A New Storm Gathers. That was great. That was 
really telling about your most recent trip to Orlando, but I think what we did well in that episode, if you listen back to your listener, is we looked at things that Chris had not done before, um, things that he hadn't experienced. So it wasn't kind of the same rehashing where we say, oh yeah, we rode um, this ride for the seventh time and they changed a little bit of it. This was really all new things that Chris got to enjoy on his recent trip to Orlando, Florida. And we had a recent trip together, actually. Um, we celebrated kind of an anniversary of the podcast by meeting up at Knobles, both our first times there. And I think that episode was really special because, like I said, neither of us had been to the park before. Definitely a bucket list park. So to be able to, to do that and go together and ride the Phoenix was really something special. Oh, yeah, that was such a blast. A good time. And I'm glad that we have it immortalized in podcast form and with a couple of nice photos, too. Uh, then the episode before that was an episode called Paraclocytheron, a Bush Gardens Hollow Scream adventure. Uh, that is, now again, I checked it, the first time that the word Paraclocytheron, which, yes, is a real word, it's the first time that word has been used in a podcast title ever. And we did it. So give us all the credit and the adulation and the love because we put that in a podcast episode and added something that had never been there before. So if you're new to Corkscrew Convos, welcome. Thanks for stopping by. We're glad that you're here. If you're here again, welcome back. Good to see you again, old friend. Uh, but take a look around, take a listen, and we hope you enjoy yourself as we get into the meat of this episode, which is going to be highlighting roller coasters from the 1980s as we catch up with our sort of historic coasters, our legacy coasters, legendary coasters from each year of the 1980s. So we'll go ahead and jump into this segment, and we're really covering uh, all the, co not all the coasters, but major coasters um, from 1980 to 1989. So some of these years, we're going to talk about one coaster, some of them we'll talk about multiple. We'll explain why, but what we really tried to do was not only capture sometimes the biggest and baddest coaster that came out in that year, but maybe coasters that weren't the biggest and baddest, but the technology that they employed uh, can be seen today, or they were revolutionary somehow in that technology, that engineering that they feature, whether it's the ride type, whether it's how the riders are riding on the car, construction methods, you'll hear why we nominated each of these. And like we've said before, be sure to have a corkscrew conversation with us. If you think we've missed something and you wonder, DJ, how did you completely miss this coaster from 1983? Let us know. Yeah, today gives us a, a chance to look back at that decade, highlight a coaster that really added to the conversation the greater conversation that was roller coasters and what is new and out there. Uh, this decade saw the continuation of the coaster wars that I think a lot of people mark the beginning of being the racer opened at Kings Island in 1972. And I think that was really um, a time where Park said, we got to have the biggest, baddest, most, most nth thing uh, that they were going to add and advertise. And it also saw the introduction of several new types of roller coasters, new heights, uh, new technologies. So, DJ, let's buckle up. Let's get in our time machine right now. It's time to go back to 1980. We're back in 1980, an era with no social media. We're playing on the Atari. We're going to the local arcade. And all we're seeing about our local parks, any advertisement, would be something we catch on TV or most likely a magazine ad or some sort of flyer. And here we are in 1980 as we learn about the Orient Express. Yes, of course, we had to talk about the Orient Express at Worlds of Fun in Kansas City, Missouri, former home park for myself. Never got to ride this. Um, now, I will admit it was around when I was old enough to ride it. I probably was tall enough. It closed in 2003, so I probably would have had my chance in 2002 or 2003. Unfortunately... My first visit to Worlds of Fun was in 2004, so mm, I missed it by one year. Um, it may have actually been 2005, but anyways, I missed it by a year or two. Don't know that I would have ridden it anyway, Chris. Um, that was a time when I was still kind of getting into coasters. I don't think the height would have scared me, but I did not do inversions at this point. I was too afraid I'd be sick, um, and so I don't think I would have been, ridden it anyways unless I was convinced maybe by a family member or something. 
Yeah, no inversions, let alone interlocking loops, the second ever built in the world. Uh, the first being, of course, the legendary Loch Ness Monster at Busch Gardens Williamsburg. But this did have interlocking loops that looked uh, very similar to the Loch Ness Monster loops, except they were all painted red. Uh, and, of course, a Batwing element, too, uh, that really rounded out the elements of this roller coaster. Yeah, and only 12 ever, uh, one of 12 ever coasters to have that element, so that's a little bit more cool as well. Um, you can actually still go to the station building of Orient Express if you visit World of Fun, if you go during Halloween Haunt. If you go in the lore of the vampire haunted house, uh, it uses the old station building, so if you want a little bit of nostalgia, you actually walk down into the tunnel um, that the lift hill um, was coming out of to begin the ride. Um, it's an impressive ride, I think, for the time of when it was constructed. I think it's one that kind of people forget about existing. Um, but 55, uh, 50 miles an hour, height of 117 feet with 115 foot drop. Um, but really in the trees, lots of foliage around it. Um, definitely check out a POV if you can. Yeah, wish I could have ridden it. It looks legendary. It does look sort of like a combination of Loch Ness Monster and Vortex at Kings Island. If those two coasters had come together, this looks like the product. Uh, but uh, again, it uh, bit the dust in 2003, and uh, we shall not see its light again, to quote Game of Thrones. <laughs> <laughs> what a great series. 81 takes us closer to where I live now. It, it's the bat at King's Island. Um, this was, I think, perhaps one of the first suspended coasters ever. Yep, number um, one, first one. But what makes it so special was how those cars, as I said, suspended, they swung out around certain turns. Yeah, they swung, and they articulated, they moved, but the trouble was the track itself was largely unbanked. They said, we won't have to calculate and build bank track because the cars themselves were accommodate for that with uh, all the forces, and I'm not going to get into all the physics terms, largely because I don't know them, but long story short, that didn't really work, and it created quite a wild ride. Uh, there are some videos out there that I would recommend you go watch of the old bat at Kings Island. I say old bat because, of course, they have another bat right now, uh, but it opened in 1981, it uh, was a prototype ride, three trains. It looked amazing in the, in the fact that you look at this and say, how did they do this? Why did they do this? It looks incredible, uh, but it, mm, it ultimately did not work in the long term. And it was removed just two seasons later in 1983. It uh, stood but did not operate for a couple more years before it was finally removed and then replaced with Vortex at Kings Island. See, DJ, it all comes back full circle, back to Vortex. All roads <laughs> lead to Vortex. Yeah, if anyone ever says, uh, if you see them at Kings Island, you overhear someone say to their kid, oh, I, I rode this when I was a kid. Uh, they're most likely referring to this ride, which actually doesn't exist, but I'm assuming they didn't have computer modeling like we do now, that sort of thing, so they didn't really know what they would be doing um, with the final product once it's built. It's like, oh, let's see what the thing does, but it's not like the concept died. There are plenty of suspended coasters that were created after this. Many of them have been demolished, but there are still a few out there. Yeah, I mean, uh, not to spoil things, but in just a couple of years, we'll be highlighting a suspended coaster itself. But here we are first, 1982. It's time to leave the U.S. We're not going to one of these parks in North America. We are going over to Vienna, Austria for Wiener Looping. This was a Schwarzkopf roller coaster that was built for the 1982 season. But here's the kicker, DJ. It never actually operated at its first location. Hmm. Did not you know You ever this. think about that? Yeah, it was huh. built for Wiener Prater. And it's a Schwarzkopf shuttle-style coaster that was, a, would say, an advancement, a next step, a next generation from a shuttle loop where you would simply launch, go through the loop, get the spike, and then go backwards through it. Now there was an overbank turn, and again, still a loop and two spikes, but it was a little more of a coaster than what it was previously with those shuttle loops. And it is still kicking today. Of course, it opened, uh, didn't open, but it first was built at Wiener Prater in Vienna. It was too noisy, so the local residents said, you can't have that here. 
and they weren't allowed to, even though I'm pretty sure Vina Prater has been around for hundreds of years. But whatever, that's a, a fight that happened more than 40 years ago, and I'm not going to hash it out again. <laughs> but then it went to Boardwalk and Baseball, it went to Flamingo Land, and now it's at Selva Magica as Bullet, where it is still operating today. And if you look at these uh, videos that pop up on the internet every now and again, the coaster is still out there. Again, it looks really cool <laughs> because it's a shuttle loop, but it's a little more than a shuttle loop. So that is uh, the reason that we highlighted it for 1982. Yes, you'll have to make your way down to Guadalajara in Mexico to ride it, but I've heard it's still a great ride. Uh, something you will not be able to ride perhaps ever again, anything like it, is 1983's Moonsault Scramble. Uh, this was created oh, by yeah. an, a Japanese coaster amusement ride company. Um, what's impressive about this is we're in 1983, and first off, we have a really a hyper coaster, um, a height of 229 feet at the top spike. I don't know if you could classify the drop as that tall, as the speed was only 55 miles an hour. But what was impressive is you would go up this spike backwards, and then you would fly through this pretzel knot, which is like a corkscrew into a half loop, half loop corkscrew, and come out the same direction you enter. Um, but you go through it so fast, the G-force that was recorded is 6.5. That is ridiculous. Eesh. That is... Uh, we've heard stories about this coaster. It is sort of legendary how it exerted such forces on the riders. It operated from 83 to 2000. It looks incredible. You sort of look at it, and again, like the bat, you say, wow, how did they do that? Why did they do that? And nothing else was built, at least on that scale, ever again for something like that. It is interesting to note that this opened one year before the first Vekoma Boomerang. So I don't know who was looking at whose paper in terms of homework, but like you look at a picture of this and you say, this was a Vekoma Boomerang if it drank Red Bull. And it's incredible. It's enormous. It has that tubular, oh, here we go, tubular, this tubular <laughs> arch of a support structure. It's beautiful. It's strange. And, I mean, I think there's Mount Fuji in the background. Let me confirm yep. that. Yeah, I it's Fujiku so. Highland, yeah. Mm -hmm. It's a legendary coaster. There are videos out there. I think the camera itself starts, like, uh, blacking out or something at the bottom of the pretzel loop because of how intense it is. <laughs> oh, it's something that I guess you just sort of had to be there because it looks incredible. And, uh, of course, like many of the coasters on this list, we shall not see its light again. It's interesting to hear that, uh, you know, Vacoma getting these um, internal documents, uh, procuring them from Arrow, uh, but you don't even think about this coaster that's a totally different company from either Vacoma or Arrow and it having the similar track structure and everything. So that's a good pull out there, a good thing to think about. 84, um, I don't want to steal your uh, wind on this one, Chris. I think you probably want to introduce this little nugget of a coaster. Well, much like you never got to ride Orient Express, there's another aero ride that I never got to ride myself, and that was Big Bad Wolf at Busch Gardens Williamsburg. It opened in 1984 as one of the first successful suspended coasters out there. They had taken a couple years after the bat trying to fix it, trying to get it to work, and finally, between the Big Bad Wolf and XLR8 at Six Flags Astroworld in Houston, they got it right. And when I say they got it right, they got it right in a big way. Because yeah. I have heard about the Big Bad Wolf, that drop over the Rhine River, that flight through the little village that they built as well. It seems like an amazing coaster. I wish I could have ridden it. Much like you, DJ, I saw it in 2009. I was young and dumb, and I said, eh, I'm not ready for that. I'll ride it next year. And then next year never came for the Big Bad Wolf. Sometimes when I ride Verbolton and we go up to that bridge and we're about to go over the drop that follows the same footprint, I close my eyes and I think, wow, this is the closest I'm ever going to get to the Big Bad Wolf. <laughs> Sometimes when I'm at Kings Island and I'm riding their new bat and we're going down the drop, I close my eyes and I say, this is the closest I'm ever going to get to the Big Bad Wolf. I just amalgamate those two experiences and say, 
that's probably what it was like to ride the big bad wolf between those two rides and you know that's one of the biggest mistakes in my life and uh, i'm just gonna have to learn to live with it uh but again uh, as, as we're gonna say you're gonna say it with me dj we shall not see its light again <laughs> uh, it's a, a ride that i wish i could have ridden but uh, it uh, it went the way of the dodo along with xlr8 and there's only a handful of suspended coasters left now, uh, but they really did take the world by storm when they debuted in the 80s. Yeah, you've got Ninja at Magic Mountain. Uh, you have Iron Dragon, Cedar Point. I'm lucky enough to have been on Vortex at Canada's Wonderland. I think that's as close as I'll ever get to the Big Bad Wolf. That's a fantastic ride, yeah. and Big Bad Wolf had a great shelf life. I mean, basically 30 years standing and operating, so yeah, that's 25 awesome. on the dot. They celebrated its 25th anniversary, and then they said, that's all you get. <laughs> <laughs> well, we also have a couple other just uh, quick mentions here in 84. That was more of a bigger year than these others where we want to point out some other coasters, and we'll be quick here. But uh, over at Six Flags Magic Mountain, we had the unveiling of the Sarajevo bobsleds. This is really the first example of a steel bobsled alongside two other bobsled rides that opened at Six Flags Great Adventure in New Jersey and the defunct Opryland in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, but these were the first bobs we ever saw since the 1950s, where every bobsled ride, 50s and before, all made of wooden track, similar to what you would find at Knobles on flying turns. Now we have the steel sort of half pipe uh, that was popular in that, that era. And some of these are still around, La Vibora down in uh, over Texas. And you also have Avalanche, which is now Reptilian in uh, King's Dominion. Yeah, this was a new take, uh, a Sort of a, it's not trackless, but it's, I don't know, there's a trough, not a track. So it is technically a trackless roller coaster, uh, decades before the trend of trackless dark rides. <laughs> uh, but it was going down a trough, and it did add a little bit of variability in the ride, not a ton, uh, but you were able to coast down the trough, and uh, generally there'd be some nice uh, helices or turns that would give you a little bit of a unique sensation as well, and I've ridden a handful of them. They're pretty good rides. I mean, flying turns, that is something else. I'd say that's definitely on another level compared to the other uh, bobsled coasters that I've ridden, uh, but great to have this variety as well that opened in 1984. Uh, but there was another new concept that came to the United States in the 80s, specifically in 1984, just a couple years after it debuted in Japan, and that is the stand-up roller coaster. Yeah, that's King Cobra down in Kings Island. There have been others like this, this Togo-style stand-up coaster. Uh, if you have played Roller Coaster Tycoon, the OG, um, this would be your stand-up coaster model. It's what it's modeled after. Um, but really a ride that was completely new experience for a lot of folks. You could say maybe the evolution of that is now the um, Surf Rider coming down to uh, SeaWorld at Orlando. This is the first purpose-built stand-up coaster in the U.S., so definitely an intense experience. You're standing up, uh, going through the drops, the loops, everything else. Um, they're not that popular, at least not anymore. There's, there's not many of these left over, so uh, I think what will be interesting, and we talked about this on a previous episode, what will the new stand-up coaster, or sorry, sorry, surfing coaster uh, built at SeaWorld Orlando, what will that do for that coaster type? Will we see more of those from B&M? Who knows? Well, it's a very attractive train, uh, now that it was recently debuted. Uh, but this is going to be, I think, 1999 was the last time that we got an entirely new stand-up coaster in the Georgia Scorcher. So a lot of time has passed. Uh, we've gotten some stand-up coasters moving around. Sometimes they get floorless trains added onto them. Uh, but with King Cobra, that was the first time that the U.S. had seen a purpose-built stand-up coaster. Of course, uh, this is uh, not... We're talking about Extreme Roller here, or Scream Roller, or all the different names that it had at Worlds of Fun, where they literally put a stand-up train on an existing aero corkscrew and said, here you go. And that was a wild ride from the look of it because it wasn't built to be a stand-up coaster, but it was for, I think, at least part of a season. Yeah, it's one of those things where you wonder, did someone just create this out on a whim to be different? And then everyone thought, oh, well, we didn't know people wanted to stand up on these. We can make that. Yeah, you got to keep up with the Joneses. I mean, if you don't have a heartline <laughs> in your design to begin with, you can't miss it when you shift it up uh, two or three feet with the trade. <laughs> Oof. 
oof. Well, we'll, we'll jump now into 1985, and this is maybe a, a lesser-known coaster. I, I'm being completely sarcastic here. Uh, but this is when the Phoenix was not built, but when it was relocated uh, to the Knobles Amusement Resort. And we just have to mention the Phoenix, I think, on every podcast moving forward. Uh, it was such a religious experience, such a life-changing experience, that to not mention this fantastic buzz bar wooden roller coaster uh, would just be heresy. Yeah, it's a coaster that moved from San Antonio. They aptly named it Phoenix because it was coming back from the ashes. It was built piece by piece. They numbered a lot of the pieces and and put them together in Pennsylvania in a little park called Knobles. And it turns out that they did a great job with that. And that ride is uh, one that we both rode for the first time uh, just about two months ago, I think. And that was... An incredible experience, just like you said, DJ, and it debuted in 1985. So we're talking about a lot of steel coasters here, some mine trains even, but this was a wooden coaster that was showing that, uh, of course, a wooden coaster was also being prominently displayed in the 1980s as well. I want to give a dishonorable mention in 1985 as well, Um, and I fully mean this in every sense of the word dishonor. Um, The Ultra Twister at Tokyo Dome City was constructed by Togo in 85. This was the first time we saw what you might call a pipeline coaster, uh, where the cars sit inside of the track. Um, They have this wild circular support structure around the cars, and really all they do is they were able to go straight up a chain lift, go down a drop, do a couple hills, and then a heartline roll where your middle of your, your chest is never changing in the middle of the inversion. You'd come to a break run, and then there'd be this wild sort of turntable track that would lift the front of the car up, and you would drop to a second track and do the whole thing again backwards. Uh, these had some sort of popularity, I would say, not only in Japan, but around the world. Um, but I don't think there's really any remaining today, at least not in the United States. I think the ones that are remaining, I know in Japan, there's a couple. I don't know where else they might be, but... If you've ever seen the Heartline Coaster in Roller Coaster Tycoon 2 and Roller Coaster Tycoon 1, this is what we're talking about. And 3. Yeah, and DJ, don't, why don't, don't you that like game. this? It looks like a really cool new idea. Why do you say it's a dishonorable mention? I guess it's a cool idea. I've seen um, not necessarily POVs, but like rider perspective, or not perspective, but showing riders on this thing. They've got these wild over-the-shoulder restraints with these huge like leather couch couches on the side of their heads, um, I guess, to prevent headbanging. But you can just see when they hit the brake run, I mean, they stop so hard, their heads just wham back into the seat. And the whole train goes, oh! <laughs> it's not a smooth magnetic brake run like you'd find today on modern coasters. Yeah, well, it was 1985. I don't know what you wanted from them, DJ. It was 85. Things were a little rougher back then. Uh, But then it's actually fortuitous that we mentioned that because in 1986, we get a coaster that was uh, sort of before its time, futuristic in a sense. And that was Shockwave at Six Flags Magic Mountain. This was Intamin working with the subcontractor Giovanola. They had two engineers as part of Giovanola that really went off, I think, in terms of making Shockwave. You could tell that this was not like anything else that had been done before. We'd gotten Z-Force one year before with that thick box spine track that was eventually going to look like B&M track. And then we got Shockwave, which was a stand-up coaster not built by Togo or Arrow, but by Intamin and Giovanola and those two engineers at Giovanola. And you could tell that they were beginning to use computer-aided design in their creation of these roller coasters that would ultimately, not in the 80s necessarily, but in a couple years after that, create a ride like Kumba that is just a masterpiece of smooth, incredible intensity of a roller coaster. Yeah, and I think what's interesting about this track type, if you ever look at the spine, it has this this box-style spine, but if you look really closely, that box is made out of small triangles that have been welded together, and that new technology is what has, has made that those coaster tracks so smooth and so durable and can really take many more forces than what we'd seen before. But that shockwave will move into 1987. We're going to go across the pond, as they would say. <laughs> We're going to go to Sweden, to Liseberg, where we find Liseberg Bonin. Um, this is like a Zier sort of Schwarzkopf uh, designed, just wild mine train coaster. I've heard some people describe this as one of the best mine trains out there. Uh, what do we mean by mine train? Well, it's sort of a family coaster with no inversions, 
just swooping drops, low to the ground moments. Um, but it's built on the hill that the park is located on. And I've heard nothing but great things. I mean, this park is on such a huge hill that to get to the top of it, I think they have escalators in the parks that take you up to the top to ride what's now Helix up there. But um, Lisaburg Bonin is still operating. The thing does like 2,000 people per hour, 50 mile an hour speed. I mean, it's really, I think, the ideal mine train, what you would imagine. Super long as well. I think the ride time is like over two minutes, maybe. Yeah, this is a roller coaster that we featured a lot of Arrow, I think, in this uh, decade because it was Arrowhoose at that time. And, of course, they were very prominent, but right up with them was Schwarzkopf and now Zier as well, uh, which was uh, getting into the roller coaster industry, too, around this time. Uh, of course, they have their own uh, custom designs like Verbolton now or... Um, Impulse. Impulse, yes. Or Impulse as well. And uh, But this is, you can see, where they got their beginnings as well, working with Schwarzkopf in some capacity, too, uh, to create this very custom, enormous project that just looks incredible. Um, and uh, we had to feature that as well for 1987. 88 DJ. This is episode 88. We got a coaster from 88 now. We are going to stay away from the United States because there was something that went on in Japan that was a bit of a precursor. I know uh, a lot of people attribute the opening of Magnum Excel 200 at Cedar Point as a real departure in just building coasters that have a ton of loops and corkscrews. But I gotta say, look one year ahead, and that'll point to what you need. That's Bandit. And this is a Togo mega coaster. It does an Eclipse 200 feet. I think it's 167, let me confirm that here. Yeah, that yes, looks right. uh, 167 feet, uh, top speed of 68 miles per hour. But what's different here, again, is it's not a bunch of loops or rolls or corkscrews or things like that. It's a big drop. It has a couple of huge sweeping bank turns. It has a very large helix, couple of hills as well. And it looks an awful lot like a mega coaster. Now, forgive me, DJ, I might even say the world's first mega coaster ahead of Magnum Excel 200 by one year. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think Magnum, you know, breaks that 200 foot mark at, at a hyper coaster, but you don't really have any of these mega coasters. Yeah, and then coasters. we get Moonsault Scramble, so we can take all of right. the historic right. accolades away from Magnum Excel 200 if we really wanted to. Yeah, it all comes down to like marketing and, and, and branding and that sort of thing. It's like, you know, it is what you say it is uh, if you're the park, you know, if you're Six Flags San Antonio, it is a log flume coaster, whatever that new thing's called, whatever the surfing coaster is called. If this is a mega coaster, whoever made that term, great. Whoever made hyper coaster, that's just how it is. But this does look like, as you said, Chris, maybe the first example of a mega coaster. It's really what I would consider, uh, what, well, not what I would consider, what people call a jet coaster uh, all over Japan. These huge coasters that just do hill after hill, big helixes, big, big helices, I should say, pardon me, um, <laughs> huge drops, uh, and just a big coaster. And the funny thing is, is when you ask people if they have been to Japan, if they're lucky enough to go and they ride these, they're like, yeah, kind of underwhelming. Um, as you can see on Bandit, yeah, the drop looks interesting, but it's not steep by any means. Uh, so you'd feel some speed, but even that first turnaround, you go up so high, it's like you're kind of just turning around in the air, like you're probably not feeling anything, but very interesting. Um, it also says here that the ride experience is a change in elevation of 255 feet, so that's crazy. That's that's almost like a, makes me think of Phantom's Revenge at Kennywood. Yeah, that seems like a very special roller coaster, and it's one that we couldn't leave the 80s without highlighting as well. But we have one year left. This is 1989. We're about to enter the 90s, and here we are with Magnum XL 200. This, uh, we've already said a lot about it this episode. It was, quote-unquote, the world's first hyper coaster with a full circuit, a drop of... 194.7 feet, not even 200, uh, but a height of 205 feet. Uh, it was an out-and-back coaster again, drawing from Bandit and having that departure of loops and corkscrews and that sort of thing, where now it had hill after hill, and it did have a, a big turnaround at the midpoint, but then coming back with these hills where you just turn up, you have a short, uh, straight portion of upwards movement, then you go down, and it's 
it's aggressive, DJ, because it's sort of like triangles that you're go, going over with the hills instead of these smooth parabolic movements. It's uh, aggressive and fun, and it's been kicking for almost 40 years now, almost 40 f- yeah. Yeah, almost there. Wow, that coast has been around for a long time. All these have, the ones that are still here at least. Uh, but Magnum XL 200, you look at the station, it's this big, concrete, brutalist structure. It looks a lot like my college campus with these just giant concrete fins in the air. I don't know what they do, but they look really cool. <laughs> the train itself looks sort of like a 1980s Star Wars space shuttle sort of thing. Yeah, a lot of Blade uh, it Runner vibes the 1980s. It gives off. Exactly, Blade Runner to uh, it's now. It's, I can't say that the future is riding on it because that's Millennium Force. But man, they knew what they were doing with the aesthetic of this roller coaster here, and uh, you can't go to Cedar Point without even not riding Magnum XL 200. At least looking at it and saying, "Wow, it's still there and it's incredible." Yeah, even the trains themselves have this more like aerodynamic futuristic turn-of-the-century look, which is just great. Um, you know, I think maybe in the mid-2000s, the ride wasn't aging well as far as the, as its aesthetic was concerned. But now it's like, wow, this this is like in. You know, this is what people like, this old throwback style of thing. Um, I love the ride. I know that it's kind of divisive. Some people are like, it's one of the best rides there. Other people want it gone. Uh, but I ride it every single trip. I do multiple rides on it. I love it. I might even prefer it to some of the Morgan Hypers, if I'm being honest. Yeah, what's old is new again. And I think, um, hmm, that's tough. I've ridden Mamba several times, but I think Magnum has more air, more hills yeah, at least, because it has all end. those little hills. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so that's 1989. We closed out the 80s. And I know there's going to be at least one of you that says technically the 1980s, that decade itself proper, was from 1981 to 1990. And to that, I'm going to say I know, but not for the purposes of this podcast episode. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So just had to to throw that out there as well. But DJ, wow, we have been careening through the 1980s. We covered it in just under an hour, it seems like. And uh, that was a ton of fun. Certainly was. I, I love doing these sorts of things where we look at history and, and, and we look at things that used to be and even things that are still are standing and we kind of, you know, extrapolate maybe what we think of why this design stuck around or how it changed the amusement industry for good, maybe sometimes worse, but mostly for good. And we appreciate doing that. And as we said before, if you have questions, dear listener, be sure to let us have a corkscrew conversation with you. If you want us to do that, there are a variety of ways. We touched on this earlier, but we are on Twitter, YouTube, Facebook, TikTok, and Instagram, all at corkscrew convos. Yeah, if you want to help out the show, a free, easy, quick way to do that, we have an option for you. On Apple Podcasts, leave a written five-star review. If you're on Spotify, leave a five-star review as well, uh, because that helps out the show too. DJ, I'm trying to find a way to use themed language, as the kids say, to sign off this episode. And I'm trying to think of some phrases that were in the 80s and i know that i'm gonna get confused with the 90s too because like if you were to say then why don't you marry it that's 90s right that is specifically 90s and not 80s i think so okay so we can't say that in okay how about we say something like uh and we mentioned some of the roller coasters had tubular supports and a lot of them tubular track i think when the kids were saying that in the 1980s they were responding to this <laughs> explosion of roller coasters that utilize this tubular steel track. This was the (laughs) decade of the steel coaster, I think. Um, So why don't we say, instead of saying this has been another corkscrew convo, we say this has been a totally tubular corkscrew convo. And we've changed things up for the first time here with the sign-off. Let's do it. I I think that's the plan. Until next time, my name is Chris. And my name is DJ. And this has been a totally tubular corkscrew convo. Thanks for listening. Gnarly, dude. Oh, yeah. <laughs>